Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. So, Chris, here we are at the Waveland Island Studios. This is episode 10, The First Murder. Yes, Patrick, this is a theme that you have been mining because First Settler was, was episode eight. Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable. Right. Episode nine was the first scandal. And then this episode is also involving John Kinsey a bit, and it's the first murder. Right. So this is a theme that we've had running through the last two episodes anyway. Right. So... Episode 10 of the Windy City Historians podcast. You and I were working on the podcast, and we knew we were going to be talking about this first murder of Chicago. To help us navigate this episode about the first murder, we interviewed Paul Daling, which rhymes with sailing. Paul is a freelance writer, and he wrote that article in The Reader, about this murder. It was a fairly extensive article. Yes, yes, which was great for us because we were talking about working on this episode and then we happened to just by chance pick up the reader and there it was on the front cover. Yeah, fantastic. So we read it. It was wonderful. We called Paul. And he was good enough to come and be interviewed and you're gonna, we're going to jump into that. So, Chris, we should kind of set the scene of what Chicago looks like. This is this okay. is, We're going this to 1810. Is, this is 1810, 1812. Chicago is not even a village. It is merely, as the Greenville Treaty of 1795 says, a six-mile square at the mouth of the Chicago River. Six-mile square. So this is a military outpost on land controlled by the federal government. Yes. Basically, it's a, a U.S. reservation in the midst of Indian country. Run, controlled... By the federal government. The U.S. Army has now put a post here built in 1803 for Dearborn. Mm -hmm. And that is basically at South Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive, right by the river. And and if you go there today, they have those brass or bronze plaques uh, that are built into the sidewalk and sort of outline the... the, um, Foundation. The foundation and and I want to say the houses, the... um, the block houses mm-hmm. that that are a couple stories high that had probably a cannon atop each one. Their roof had the ability to oversee the area around the fort. And that's on the south side of the river. And Patrick, I wanted to ask you, how many people, how many soldiers, I should say, are in the fort? So there's about 50, 55 soldiers in the garrison. Okay. That's led by Captain Heald, who is the commander in charge. He has Lieutenant Helm underneath him. Okay. who is actually married to one of John Kinsey's stepdaughters. And then Ensign Ronan, who is also new to the outpost. He came from New York and was at West Point prior to this. And then surgeon's mate Isaac Van Voorhees has replaced John Cooper, who was the surgeon's mate prior and also was involved in the sutlering business that got him and Whistler in trouble and mm-hmm. caused this reshuffling of the fort commanders between Detroit, Fort Wayne, and Chicago. And we mentioned in previous episodes that the fort was actually built by Captain Whistler, who... In 1803. Who did a really good job of building the fort and running the fort, but came under the poison pen of Matthew Irwin, who didn't like the way that Captain Whistler did business or conducted himself, and that caused a reshuffling of the captains around the forts of the Great Lakes. Yes, correct? that ninth episode, the first scandal, was all about the settling business, mm-hmm. and the, the factor got uh, sideways with the way that was being done, mm-hmm. and he used his family influence in Philadelphia to write the Secretary of War. Directly opposite 
on North Michigan Avenue, or as Paul will say later on, where the Apple store is today. Pioneer Court. Is about where the Point de Sable estate was Mm -hmm. that then is acquired and eventually run by John Kinsey about 1803, 1804, his family comes, and he's been running that trading post and farm along the lakefront of Chicago and the Chicago River, which, of course, the lakefront is almost at Michigan Avenue. All the rest of that that's east of there is landfill that we've added over decades. And we've talked about in previous episodes, the mouth of the Chicago River was really a sandbar that yep. f- the river would deviate south to about Randolph Street or Monroe. Yeah. And so it's not what we think of today, folks. And then there's a smattering of other settlers. You've got like a list, Chris, of maybe, cut, maybe read off some of the names so we get a sense of who else is there. These are some of the cabins. John Kinsey, Michel Corsol, Jean Lalime, Thomas Burns, Francois Lamay, Louis Petrel, J.B. Chardonnay, Louis Busson, James Lay, William Russell. Lay and Russell also own a farm at Hardscrabble on the south branch of the river. J.B. Marandu, Samuel Clark, Francois Laframboy, Alexander Robinson, J.B. Bobian. Of course, anyone on the north side knows Bobian. For the Bobian Woods. Wo- Bobian Woods, yeah. yes. Francois Depin. This is from the book Early Chicago by Aldrich Dunkers and Jane Meredith. It's like 14 You're right. cabins or something. Right. So you can hear from those names, there's a, a strong French uh, element yes. here in Chicago, uh, in addition to then some typical names like Lee and uh, yeah. Russell or Burns, mostly former soldiers. Right, which is an, another indication of, of what was going on previously at this region. So my question to you is, if I, as Mr. Pioneer, wanted to live there, let's say I'm in Philadelphia and I want to strike out on my own, could I move to Chicago? Uh, you'd be taking, you'd put, put everything at risk. would probably be asked to leave. Unless sure. you have a good, compelling reason to be there. Or you're basically kind of taking your chances. You can live there if you want, but you will never own that land. That's U.S. government land. Yeah. And so you would have to go through some process later when it gets opened up, because settlers are not really supposed to be past the Allegheny Mountains. Of course, now Kentucky, a bunch of Irish immigrant and Germans and other immigrants that came and went west and settled Kentucky against the U.S. government's wishes, but there was no stopping them, and they took their chances and were living in Indian territory. So So you could be a squatter, perhaps. Maybe Maybe the Army would leave you alone. Maybe they wouldn't. Right, and you're at risk to Indian attack, so you could easily be killed in your sleep or while you're out tending the fields. You just never know. You're on the frontier. And the land itself, that six-mile square, you would not be able to get title to that land. So I probably would need permission to live on or near the the land? Well, that did happen. There was a few soldiers that left uh, or resigned their commissions from Fort Dearborn, and this is a garrison of about 50, 55 soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they built a cabin. Two or three or four of those men stayed and raised families uh, right around Fort Dearborn. And I know there was one case where James Lee was a former sergeant. John Burns was another soldier. And James Lee wrote asking if they could stay and, and make improvements to the farm that they had started raised some cattle. and Right, so you stressed the point that they needed permission to live on or near this military land. Yes, and if they didn't have permission, for instance, there was a group of French or Metis community, mm-hmm. uh, which is a mix of the Native Americans and the French, who were living there already. Prior to the fort. Or had come into the area with the fort. They could be kicked out at any time. Okay. So there's not a lot of people in this area of Chicago. There's the fort. Yep kind of where Wacker Drive and Michigan Avenue is. Yep, exactly. Across the river, a stone's throw, is the former Point de Sable farm, now owned by John Kinsey. So what's unique about this period of time is that the principals could all see each other. The fort 
Dearborn occupants can look across the river and probably th- if they had a baseball, if baseball was invented, they could probably throw one. Oh, sure. And hit, yeah. The Point to Sable slash Kinsey house. And then just west of there, as we talked about in the ninth episode, just outside the fort within gunshot would be the trading house, which is for the Indian agent and Matthew Irwin, the U.S. factor about where the Wabash Bridge is. And that's where the U.S. factory stored its goods and did trade with the Indians. And of course, it's on the south side of the river as opposed to the Kinsey farm. On the north side. On the north side. Right, right. So if real estate is everything, location, 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 the south end of this situation is where it's at, right? Right, right. Because you've got the fort and then you have the trading house. Yeah. The U.S. factory right. stores yeah. that are right there. That's the prime real estate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense why the loop became as important as it did to Chicago. So again, we jumped in our time machine. That's what we're looking at. Yep. It's a bunch of prairie landscape. It's wet, muddy, not a lot of game. And there's a little bit of timber around, but not much. And we have this fort, and the native Potawatomis are the tribe in the area that Fort needs to stay on good relations with. Okay, so as of 1810, Captain Heald is in charge. Whistler has left. Yep. This sets the stage for what's about to happen. The first murder in Chicago. Paul, just pronounce your name the way you, you pronounce it, just so we don't screw it up. <laughs> Paul Daling. Yeah, it's like sailing, but with a D. Because in Chicago, if it was daily, I mean, that would open a lot of doors. Heck, I wouldn't be in this rinky-dink operation. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, glad to have you here on the Windy City Historians Podcast. Glad to be here. You stood out to us uh, because as we want to get into this early Chicago history, and you recently wrote a great article in The Reader on Gene Laleem and his murder. Yep. Uh, <laughs> How did you come across that? Okay, so I I had a blog called 1001 Chicago Afternoons, which you can still find at 1001chicago.com. It was trying to recreate uh, Ben Ben Hecht's, yeah, Yeah, sure, uh, from the 1920s and write 1001 stories. Did it three times a week instead of once. I wrapped up in November. Sounds like a lot of work. It was a lot of work and a lot of scrambling for story ideas. And one day I was on Twitter, strangely enough. It was reading one of those articles. It was a very bloody summer. People were talking about the murder rate in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, wow, you know, they're talking about like record-setting murder rates. And I wonder what the bloodiest year in history was in the city of Chicago. And I looked it up, and it was 1974. So why all these articles about the record-breaking murder rates in Chicago, half of what it was in 1974. And then and I this got, is per capita, right? This is... Or just total? Total. Okay. Uh, there were like 900... So, there are almost 1,000 people murdered. See, I would have guessed 1919, the race uh, riots. yeah. Some people think 1974, because that was the year Larry Hoover from the Gangster Disciples oh. went to prison and he was keeping things together and sort right, of balkanized right. after that. But it was 1974. So it got me down this weird Chicago trivia... Death, murder, murder mayhem. ...rabbit hole. Okay, I wonder who the first murder was. And that's how I found Jean Lalim. I found this weird reference in this Jewish blog talking about how the Chicago History Museum moved his remains off-site in 2012 because they had this exhibit called Shalom Chicago. Certain Orthodox Jews, Kohanes, they're called, can't be in the same building as a dead body. So the History Museum, quite rightfully in my opinion, thought, well, it'd be really crappy to do an exhibit about <laughs> Jewish Chicago that many Jews can't attend. And, yeah. and limit our potential reach. And limit this, our potential reach. Yeah. Not not only, like, hey, we have this great exhibit relevant to your interests. Yeah. Sorry. Right, um, right. or snub them at the same time. Exactly. Right. So they moved it off site, and I just found that fascinating. Yeah. So I wrote a little blog post about it. Original blog post, which you can still find at 1001chicago.com. It repeated a lot of the traditional stories spread by the family of John Kinsey, the man who murdered him. It's about how Lalim tried to kill him, but John Kinsey was too wily for him, and he killed him and ran off. This was Chicago's first documented murder. Yes. And John Kinsey, if you read the accounts by his descendants, it comes off as sort of a superhero. 
Yeah, I think he was a very smart man, very crafty. He knew his business, he knew people. I mean, I don't know if he could, you know, quote Shakespeare or whatever, but he was... Mm. But that day and age, they probably could quote yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah, that's true, better than we can. Yeah. Um, to be or not to... Um... <laughs> <laughs> he could be charming, too, he and apparently played too. a pretty mean fiddle. And... I mean, one of the scholars I quoted in the article, Milo Quaife, yes. uh, who, who really debunked a lot of John Kinsey's lies. And can I swear on this podcast? Can sure. I just sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. John Kinsey, bullshit. <laughs> uh, debunked a lot of that in the early 20th century. Chicago thought of Kinsey as a kind of demigod. Thanks to Wabin by Juliet Kinsey, his daughter-in-law, who he never actually met. She married his son, John Harris Kinsey, about two years after he died, and then later came to Chicago and got all these stories then from her mother-in-law, yeah. Eleanor Kinsey, who was Kinsey's second wife. Oh, no, I know. And I find it crazy like how much the popular narrative just sort of adopts the Kinsey stuff, even today. Yeah. Like, this, you know, articles like this, uh, we were talking about this on the phone, you know, this is nothing new. Like, a lot of mm-hmm. the stuff I was writing about, like, was uncovered in 1913 by, like, Milo Quaife. Yeah. Uh, yeah he was great. He was, he was fantastic. An amazing historian. He was yeah. president of the Wisconsin Historical Society and, and a well-known yeah. researcher on Mississippi and Great Lakes history. Yeah. and or Mississippi Valley, I should say. More than 100 years later... You still see the landmark documents for creating Pioneer Court. It still refers to the Kinsey story and like even lesser things. The Kinsey Hotel, if you go on their website, they've got mm-hmm. little points in time of John Kinsey's life and they mention like stabbing, assassination attempt on his life. This is dealing with stuff that's been known, provable fact for over 100 years. Milo Quaife at different times discounts Wabin and Juliet Kinsey's reports. But then later, in some historic journals, very softly says, well, a lot of what she wrote does match the history. The problem is, it's written as a historic narrative, and so for the pure historian, you struggle with it, because the things are out of sequence, and the chronology is not clean, and there's the bias of the Kinsey family that is trying to uplift their reputation and their importance to Chicago. And we're still finding, like, websites and, like, people just repeating this debunked-in-1913 story. Well, we wouldn't be having this podcast if it wasn't for Kinsey because my friend Patrick here wrote his wonderful bridge book Yeah, because of the Kinsey Avenue Bridge, right? Actually, that's yeah. true. I yeah. hadn't thought about it like that because yeah. I became a writer mainly because, unfortunately, my wife died suddenly in 1999. But that winter, I knew I needed to get out and do something productive. It's easy to tear something down, but it's, it's more interesting to build something. And so I got the camera from my youngest sister that we'd used in high school photography and photographed the bridges at Kinsey Street. Hmm. And they just resonated with me and seemed to beg a lot of questions. And then years later, came back to the idea of maybe working on a book on Chicago bridges would be interesting. And then got into this can of worms. And then, and, 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 and that's where he, also that book led me to Kinsey because I wanted to find out, well, where was the first bridge? And ironically, it's at Kinsey Street, yeah. probably where that railroad bridge, the former Chicago Northwestern Railway yeah, Bridge, stands up in the up. air. Yeah. That I perpetuate the joke that it's called the Viagra Bridge because it's always up. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that kind of brought me to the Kinsey story. And then I was fascinated by the fact of here's this guy, John Kinsey, who is in Chicago. He murders Laleem out in front of the fort. He's allowed to escape or escapes. Mm-hmm. And then later is allowed to come back to Chicago and survives uh, the Battle of Chicago or the Fort Dearborn Massacre. Yeah. You know, what? how does that happen, right? So basically, this is in historiography. This is just kind of a rumor mill, and yeah. these founding myths, and I use that word on purpose, this is just family lore. It's not like real history. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, just repeated. People were citing the documents, and they were citing the documents that cited the documents, and so created this alternate history. The guy was a scoundrel. And, <laughs> and in fact, he referred to the Jean Laleem murder as that unfortunate incident. So he didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Everybody else that was defender of Kinsey said it was in self-defense. Historians. 
So one of the big characters in the story was Matthew Irwin. Yes. Who, he was appointed to the Fort Dearborn, and his one of his first acts was to inform to the War Department on the settler situation. Uh, forts could appoint settlers to be the official people to sell goods to the soldiers. Well, and these are usually isolated forts or posts, so that they had a kind of a monopoly. And so, you know, they were charged at these exorbitant rates, and it was Cooper and Whistler was the forts settlers and the soldiers had to buy from them well, because they had these are... exclusive contracts. And so it was always a very crony, nepotist, just not even limited to Chicago. It was a disaster of a program. Uh, this is a letter from Irwin. If officers of the army are allowed to be sutlers, as was the case when, with Cooper and Whistler. Cooper was the surgeon. Mm-hmm. John Whistler <laughs> Jr. Yeah. was the Whistler of Cooper Whistler. Yeah. And his father, Captain John Whistler... Whistler, whose grandson painted Whistler's mother. Right. Built Fort Dearborn and was in charge of the fort and in command of it. So the officers could appoint themselves to run the official shop that could charge the enlisted men whatever they wanted for goods Mm -hmm. and then punish them if they didn't, if they shopped elsewhere. Uh, So anyway, the quote from uh, Irwin was, if officers of the army are allowed to be settlers, innumerable evils will naturally follow. The temptation to extortion is, with ordinary minds, irresistible. Right. right. Talk about a company store. Right? Yeah. 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 And so that's one position. So when Matt Irwin informed the War Department, he used the prices of an honest trading post in town, and he chose Kinsey's. Yeah. At that point, they kind of got along. Yeah, they got along, and, and Kinsey was the example of honest pricing. A couple years later, Kinsey got the appointment where he could charge anything he wanted, and so he charged anything he wanted to <laughs> clean up a situation and tries to clean up a situation which just creates uh, with Cooper and Whistler and just creates a job opening. You know, it's like, oh well, we got rid of these corrupt officials and yes. now we put in our own corrupt officials. Patronage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a total Chicago story. I mean Chicago from, ain't ready for reform. I'm Chicago sure John Kinsey would have said that. <laughs> According to Irwin's version of events, yeah, all right. After Kinsey is aborted, Sutler, he sort of starts sniffing around, and there's this great letter, his first letter on this topic. So he first wrote the War Department in January of 1812, saying the same thing he informed on. Cooper and Whistler for a couple years ago. Now Kinsey is doing. Yeah, basically and, the and officers of the fort are getting preferred pricing, mm-hmm. and then the enlisted men are paying these exorbitant prices, and that's where, because there's many more of them, that's where Kinsey or whoever the sutler is at that time yeah. supplying the fort is making a bunch of money. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he fires that off in January, and then there's like three PSs. As it adds to it over the days, and it's like one of them's just like, you know, maybe my safety would be in, in jeopardy in there. So he sort of realizes this is a little more radioactive than he might have thought. Yeah, I, I see the seeds of Chicago um, oh, this, this politics in, entirely growing know? here. Well, yeah, and, and like human nature swoops in. So mm-hmm. you can sort of picture Irwin like, oh, keeping it to himself, and then sort of asking around, like, you know, getting like, so what do you think of that? You know, and then he finds out that. Oh, I've lately come to ascertain that the surgeon has the same opinion of this. So Van Voorhees, the surgeon, thinks it's it's bull, and the interpreter was Laleem. Also, there's sort of teams developing. There's sort of the pro Kinsey side, yeah. which is Yield, Irwin thinks because of blackmail, Kinsey, Ensign Roman, uh, Lieutenant Helm, who's his son-in-law of John you know. Kinsey, yeah. And then there's this anti-Kinsey side, which is Matthew Irwin. Matthew Irwin. Lalim and Van Voorhees. Right. There's this novelization of this. The book Fort Dearborn, a novel by Jerry Crimmins. That talks about the three of them unifying to become a fighting force against Kinsey and Heald and all this corruption. And I don't know if I buy that drama, but I thought it was sort of interesting. I felt sorry for Irwin because he's writing these letters and he wrote a lot of them. He's firing off these letters about the situation of Fort Dearborn. And then how long did it take for these letters to reach Washington? <laughs> and um, then get a reply. Yeah, usually yeah. months, months at a time. Months and months. And the first response to that came about June. I can check the story, but I think it was about June. Mm-hmm. 
in, I want to say, April of 1812, Lee's Farm in Hard Scrabble, now known as the Bridgeport neighborhood. Yeah. And some Native Americans killed uh, the white settlers there. And so, <laughs> so there's some old school racism in calling Lilim the first murder, which I'm transmitting in terms of, because that was a better pitch for the story. So yeah, right. right. Mm-hmm. I'm owning up to that. And then there is the killings at Lee's Farm, which was April 1812. It's, you said technically it wasn't, quote, Chicago, because it was yeah. really Bridgeport. Yeah, it was, it was Hard Scrabble, which I love that name. Yeah, it's a good name. Yeah. Well, Chicago isn't even a village at that point. Yeah. yeah. So. There's just uh, a fort. Yeah, at some point when you're deciding what's the first anything, you have to just sort of, like, pick your horse. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also some of that is, I will admit, racism, old school racism. It was not sure. considered a murder. Uh, when a Native American killed a white man. Oh, it was a, Murder it was, was between white men. That was an attack, yeah. yeah. It was an attack, exactly. Then the accounts go into the pro-Kinsey side is trying to inflame the men. You know, they're talking about this injustice. They're riling them up to, like, go on the offensive, you know, to kill the tribes or whatever confederation there was. Some such supposition is Kinsey was behind this. If you're a gun runner, war is good for business. It sure is. So there's the, some supposition that he was trying to do it for that, some supposition that he was trying to, that that act, whatever retaliation, would turn the Native Americans against the United States and help his British allies. So I don't know what was in Kinsey's mind. He's working a lot of angles on this one. And even as a traitor, the other argument I've stumbled across is that while he had trading posts in Milwaukee and his partner, uh, Thomas Forsyth, was in Peoria, and... He, he also had, I think, some trading going on in the Rocky River up by the Mississippi. And so if he shut down, which the fa- U.S. factory got shut down because of the hostilities yeah. now, the fear of the Indians, Matthew Irwin's now out of business. Mm-hmm. And so now Kinsey has the opportunity to capture that trade from his posts elsewhere outside of Chicago. Yeah. There's the pro-Kinsey group, uh, Helm, et cetera, that's trying to rile up the, the men and to, to go on the offensive and, you know, get vengeance for what happened at Lee's farm. There's the anti-Kinsey group that are trying to keep the peace. At this point, Sixsaw, who showed up at the fort, and Lieutenant Helm gets a conspiracy going to murder them. According to the urban account, he, meaning Irwin, and Van Voorhees, and to a lesser extent, Laleem found out about this plan because men were whispering and they the Irwin Laleem side informs on it and then reported him to Captain Heal. He ends the conspiracy and then in this simmering unrest, Helm trash talks Irwin. Mm-hmm. Laleem hears it, defends him, and then Voorhees' account also confirms this. Captain Heald's trying to keep it all together. He actually disciplines Lieutenant Helm for threatening to murder the interpreter. So he disciplines him, elicits this horrible punishment on Lieutenant Helm for making him apologize. His second in command. Yeah, his second <laughs> in command. So Heald's trying to keep it all together, or he's part of it, I'm not really sure. Now they're mad at Van Voorhees, Laleem, and Irwin, but they ratted him out and ended their plan to murder the sock, the sick sock who were visiting. After... All this has gone down, and there's this scene, according to Irwin account, which I believe. They're arguing, and Lieutenant Helm goes on the, like, he rails, I'm going to kill the factor, Irwin. And then Laleem comes to his defense and says, you know, no, he's a great guy or whatever. And that's, there's this simmering tension mm-hmm. over all this stuff, and simmering tension over the Lee's Farms killing. The episode is about the first murder. Yes. So tell me about the first murder. So, Chris, there's multiple accounts, and piecing them together as best I can is it happens at 6 o'clock in the evening. That's actually according to, I think, a letter from Matthew Irwin on June 17th, around 6 p.m. 1812. So it wouldn't have been dark yet here in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Typically, I believe about 6 o'clock is when the fort doors to the garrison were closed and i'm not sure if there was a changing of the guard at that point or something like that as well but the accounts say that john kinsey was going across the river and there was a yell for him to watch out 
and supposedly Jean Lalime uh, fires a pistol and wounds Kinsey in like either the shoulder or neck. Hmm. And Kinsey then closes the distance between the two. Some counts say it was Lalime's knife. Others say Kinsey pulled a butcher's knife and stabbed Lalime. There's another account that says he was stabbed multiple times in the chest. And then Kinsey practically lifted the lean up and then slit his throat, practically decapitating the man. Wow. So it's pretty gruesome. Kinsey's known to have a very fiery temper. It might have been in self-defense, or at least that's what the Kinsey's court afterwards. Kinsey refers to it as the unfortunate incident and does not want to talk any further about it. This unfortunate incident is witnessed by multiple people, right? Yes. Two women, uh, French descent, working for John Kinsey, cross the river in some of the fields. It's described as the two closing, and then they go down to the ground, and then only one of them gets up, which is John Kinsey. Mm -hmm. Supposedly from 20 or 30 yards away, according to letters from Isaac Van Voorhees or Matthew Irwin, I can't remember which now, they both witnessed the attack and Isaac Van Voorhees calls it a pure assassination. Pure assassination. Yes. Okay, that's, those are strong words. And there's also an account later from John Kinsey's son. He recalls that morning his father sharpening a large knife, maybe the same knife that he used, out back earlier that day. Mm-hmm. So there's some sense that there may have been some premeditation to it rather than the one incident. What does John Kinsey do with Lalim dead on the ground? So Kinsey then goes into the fort. Kinsey was then living in the fort in the contractor's building. And Wait a minute, was he like, nothing to see here, folks, just marching to the fort? I don't know. It, there's one of the accounts that says he was in the fort for about five hours before he leaves. Okay. It gives the impression that he felt like he can get away with this. Okay. We've talked about this before. This isn't like stabbing someone in front of a police station. Or in the middle of Times Square. The the only police is John Kinsey, right? Wasn't he appointed kind of the sheriff? He's the justice of the peace. Okay. As appointed by William Henry Harrison in, I think, 1804, 1805. So he is the law. The civil authority yeah. in Chicago. Okay. The Leem's body is there outside the fort. He's left behind a wife and a son. He was also a very gregarious, well-liked person from all accounts. That strong French community within uh, the surrounding area, the, the other, say, six to eight families probably knew John Leem well and liked sure. him. sure. They were not probably credited or treated with the same respect as the gentlemen of the fort or the officers. His wife was Native American, may have been Potawatomi, but I'm not certain. And at a certain point later that day or the next day, a lot of wailing by his wife, I'm sure, was quite upset. Rituals from Native American perspective might have then been undertaken or started, apparently were interrupted. A group of soldiers led by Lieutenant Helm picked the body, took it, and then buried it. But this is north of the river. Yes. Okay, so the the soldiers ferried the body over north of the river. If it hadn't already been done, I mean... Yeah, and where do they bury it? It's unclear. Later, there was some flowery language in Wabin that Kinsey tended the grave to his dying day. Now, if you go... like some hyperbole to me. Absolutely. If you go back to... The early Chicago history by A.T. Andreas, there was a few settlers, the early folks to Chicago that are scratching their heads saying, I don't recall Kinsey attending any grave. Yeah. So this is not in the account. All I can piece together is that because Matthew Irwin and Isaac Van Voorhees were eyewitnesses to this, they probably saw the need to have some kind of an inquest or apprehend Kinsey and do some kind of a trial. Other accounts that I've read said Ensign Ronan warned Kinsey they might take him up, and then Lieutenant Helm escorts Kinsey to the river 
and Kinsey gets into a canoe and crosses the river and then is basically on the lam yeah, right. after that. Okay. Van Voorhees, one of his last letters, he promised, like, straight up, I can prove this. This and is a perfect assassination, and I can be proved when, my, when I am safe. Which, perfect assassination, I mean, especially at that day and age, was really serious accusation. See, a lot of these letters, they don't name names for fear that you would tarnish somebody's reputation right. or tarnish your own by sure. being sort of a tattletale or, like, sure. they beat around the bush all the time. Well, this is the age of duels, too. Sure. So. And, and there was a duel... Uh, potentially offered against Irwin earlier on. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Very interesting. By Kinsey. <laughs> the plot I, I, believe, I believe it was Kinsey, and he declined. The first letter coming back to Matthew Irwin... I think and, it was, yeah. And this is at the point where threats have been made on his life and where he's bunking up with the surgeon. So Isaac Van watch, Voorhees, yeah. yeah. Van Voorhees, when, so they can watch each other's backs at night. Mm. In the midst of this... On June 22nd, that letter from the Secretary of War comes, and so... That's when the first letter comes back to Captain Heal. Is months later, I've been threatening Matthew Irwin in his life, and it's to the person he suspects as being part of this conspiracy that says, hey, Captain Held should, you know, regulate this. Can't make this stuff up. By this point, Laleem is dead, and Kinsey is a fugitive. And that night, Heald orders Irwin Mm -hmm. to join the hunt for Kinsey out in the woods. Events in Ronan. Because alone at night, because Irwin has been lobbying Captain Heald to take up and have some kind of inquisition or arrest John Kinsey, who's been seen lurking around the fort, or as one letter said, within gunshot of the fort, and they've been ineffectual. Now Captain Heald is so mad because he's gotten this letter from the Secretary of War. You know, oh, like yeah, you can't right. go any higher. Yeah, right. right? right. Except maybe the president. The president. And maybe. he's not going to dabble in this stuff. Yeah. But Secretary of War is who Irwin's writing directly, and now he tells Captain kind of how to manage his own fort, which you can imagine the affront in that day and age of oh, sure. having somebody meddling. Oh, like and that. also yeah. just ratting him out. And so, according to, Van, I can't remember if this is in Irwin's or Van Voorhees' account. So basically, Heald got this letter that outed Irwin as an informant. He stormed over to Irwin, accused him of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. He ordered him to join the hunt late at night, alone in the woods with Ensign Ronan. Who he doesn't trust. Who he doesn't trust. That it's, is... it's basically saying, please, please go get murdered now. Yeah. And then Irwin did not because he was probably going to get murdered. He refuses, yeah. And I think the thing that I found most funny in this part is he writes off to the War Department that Captain Heal ordered Irwin to stop bunking with the surgeon. He reassigned the soldier. So he has a soldier assigned to him as a waiter to probably press his clothes, you know, shine his shoes and do tasks for him. And that's taken away. And he's supposed to find somebody else that he has to employ for that. He destroyed his vegetable garden, which I oh, find yeah. like hilariously petty. Take that. Yeah, take that. So, and then... <laughs> which Irwin writes the Secretary of War saying, you know, that was one of his few pastimes when he was not at duty and sort of a respite from the craziness of being here on the frontier and its hardships and also having his waiter taken away because he's a gentleman Mm -hmm. from philadelphia but it's randomly confirmed by a letter that heald fired off but what i found very interesting in the letter that heald wrote he sort of confirmed some of the details broadly paraphrasing he said all i asked you matthew Irwin, to do is try to find the murderer of someone who stabbed the interpreter in the heart in front of you. Yes. So in this angry letter, Heald confirms some of the details that there were witnesses, that yep. Kinsey just stabbed him. So he, in anger, accidentally confirmed some of the stuff that the Kinsey fake narrative would later just go against. And what I find interesting, too, is in that letter you noted, because I just read the article before we talked, he calls it one citizen... He stabs another citizen in the heart. So I also wonder, too, if Captain Heald sees this as not really a military issue, that he can kind of set it aside a little bit. But Irwin and Van Voorhees, the two gentlemen he can't rebuke, definitely are undeniable witnesses that Kinsey can't deny. Like if one of the enlisted men saw the murder, Mm -hmm. 
that can be written off, right? He can take care of that. As a gentleman, they can discount one of the privates if they saw the murder as a, a witness. Yeah. And um, let's also just remember that if this happened in Philadelphia, they would hang him from the nearest tree. Yeah. So he also had a temper on him. I mean, according to the accounts, he stabbed Laleem in a fit of anger. After killing Laleem, mm-hmm. Kinsey leaves the fort, and a few days later, he's up in Milwaukee, and there's a pro-British Indian council up there that he gets entree in after being denied for four days because one of his clerks comes up, uh, Anton Leclerc, and explains that, well, Kinsey just killed the interpreter at Fort Dearborn. So just because he's selling goods to the Americans doesn't mean he's, he's a bad guy <laughs> or that he's pro-American. And then he's let into this pro-British Indian Council where they would have definitely talked about attacking Fort Dearborn. Now, there's no real account of that other than the wow. account by yeah. Anton Leclerc, who is a clerk of Kinsey Forsyth, and then he, Forsyth, and then Billy Caldwell, who is a lieutenant of Tecumseh during the, the beginning of the War of 1812, all meet up in Peoria and are comparing notes about what's going on and how do they take care of this incident or unfortunate affair, as Kinsey calls it, and get Kinsey back to Chicago so he can keep running his business and re- reunite with his family and, and run Chicago. So there's a lot going on. In yeah. fact... Thomas Forsythe then goes down to Vincennes to talk to William Henry Harrison, and there's no document of it, but my inkling is, is that he sets up John Kinsey as a sub-Indian agent. Forsythe has already been reporting to the governor of the Illinois Territory, uh, Neenan Edward, giving him information about the disposition of the Indians, and sends on a letter from Leclerc, Kinsey, and Billy Caldwell about what's happening in the Indian Territory in end of June in 1812. Hmm. So, wow. so there's all this stuff going on. And the intrigue is, and the layers are really. I yeah. mean, it's it's confusing for the listener because we've got all these players, and we'll have to try to figure out a good way to sort that out as we I go know. through this. Yeah. But later, Captain Heald writes an order that says John Kinsey's allowed to come back uh, to Fort Dearborn until the civil authorities take him up yeah it wasn't a federal matter yeah in other words he kind of washed his hands of it that it was his responsibility even though the fort is there to kind of protect u.s territory and i would assume the settlers and people living around it yeah Uh, well i could see that i yeah yeah, i could totally see that but the other thing that i also is kind of classic chicago in this right is that the civil authority that would take up John Kinsey would be John Kinsey because he has been appointed the officer of the peace by William Henry Harrison in, I think it's 1804, 1805. And so he is the one sort of civil authority in Chicago, and he's obviously not going to arrest himself. Yeah. There's no surviving record from Laleem of what was going on. There are records of him. Yes. Uh, Actually, Newberry Library has in their collection a letter he wrote so you can actually see and touch his actual signature which was very cool it's in french yeah uh, but it was talking to the war department about potawatomi movements and just not related to this but very cool nonetheless so people you know often asked if you happen to bring up this story all right we know that there was a, a murder or a, a killing mm-hmm. but why right and what's your take on that why did kinsey kill Laleem? Okay, um, so I'm going to go back a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Because at one point, Laleem owned the DuSable Manor. Oh, which is kind of where the Tribune building is today. Yeah, which is kind of, yeah. Pioneer Court, I think it's mm-hmm. called. They've got an Apple store there now. <laughs> <laughs> right, the um, north side of Michigan yeah. Avenue and the river. Yeah. Um, so he actually took it over. Now, William Burnett, who was the fur trader and both uh, Laleem and Kinsey's boss, they both worked for him at this point, Bankrolled the sale. And he was in St. Joseph, Michigan. And he was, yeah. But Laleem was the one who took possession of it. You can find the bill of sale at the Wayne County Register of Deeds in Detroit. It was in Northwest Territory. Mm-hmm. Everything reported to Detroit at that time. And there's a copy, of course, at the Chicago History Museum. Yes, there is. Yeah. It's in French, so. <laughs> yeah, there's a photo of it. Yeah, in, I saw in your it article. in your yeah. article, yeah. Kinsey was the witness to the sale, incidentally. 
And then a couple years later, Kinsey's living there. Point de Sable had a very well-established business going. Yeah. And so now Laleem actually would be out of a job if Kinsey takes over that yeah. estate. And right. no one knows why. Like, any record of that is lost. Some people think he just sort of took over and forced him out. I think there was some sale that, like... By then, there was some real chaos in terms of the government because the Northwest Territory sort of ended, and mm-hmm. Illinois was reporting to Indiana Territory or the Michigan Territory. And Chicago was in an unorganized section. So I think it's more likely that, that nothing got filed with the government because there was chaos at the time. Maybe he was a squatter. Maybe he was a squatter. A lot of people think there's some underhanded dealings that sort of forced Lilim out. All we know is a couple years later, Kinsey's in the house. Lilim's working at the fort as an interpreter. Right. Now, so some people think that that sort of caused some bad blood between them. I don't know necessarily believe that. And can we maybe say at this point for the Chicago boosters that are listening that John Kinsey was a British-loving... Scallywag? Scallywag, ooh. Uh, uh, a rap scallion and a scallywag. Uh, uh, yes. Or um, a grifter, maybe? Or, for <laughs> Chicago audiences, a jag-off. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think, yeah. too, we're judging him from our context, and I always yeah. had a little bit of sympathy for Kinsey in that he was usually presented with a bad or a worse choice. He got, by the time he got to, to Chicago, this was with what happened after the Battle of Chicago, the third time that his trading post had been destroyed because American Indian Wars had come to where he was trading and forced him to, to leave and lose a huge amount of goods and, and basically make him penniless after he'd built something. I think generally an opportunist who was trying to protect his family and his business, and he didn't really care who he traded with. Let's go with City on the Make, Hustler. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hustler. for sure. Yeah, the Hustler's blood. Yeah. But he, if you compare him to Point de Sable, the, the records show that de Sable was a stand-up guy. Yeah. No one had anything but nice things to say about this Point de Sable, except yeah. the revisionist yeah, historians. Exactly. Uh, I think, you know, being, like, not jokey about, yeah. about Kinsey, I think... One thing that I keep coming back to, and I mentioned this in the article, is... And actually, but, side point... Kinsey family version of events was it was a shack that of course yeah, yeah. and that Kinsey made it into an economic powerhouse but yeah. you know right. that deed was one of the av- pieces of evidence that showed like no this was a very successful operation and helped put uh, De Sable in his rightful position as founder of That's... Chicago because we know by 1803 Kinsey's in there yeah and then 1812 they they fight. And so it's not like one day, nine years later, you realize, hey, I've been mad about, I'm mad about this now, and just right. stab a guy. Which is also sort of the Kinsey version of events. Yeah. That Laleem was like insane by jealousy of Kinsey's business success, and he just attacked him one day. So I don't really know if that's a reason, even though that's a commonly cited reason. I'm mentioning it because even though I don't personally believe it, yeah. I, there's a chain of evidence there that would suggest that. All we know is one... Record shows Laleem in the house. Next record shows Kinsey in the house. We don't know how that transitioned. There wasn't happened. a card game or anything or well, yeah, poker. Could have been. Maybe it was just like, hey, I got this really great business opportunity on the other side of the river at the fort. They want me as an interpreter, so here you go. And also, they both work for William Burnett, so maybe you know, maybe Kinsey wanted that post and just talked his boss into him because Laleem's over here in Chicago and. Kinsey's over here with the bosses here, just like, yeah, you know, maybe that little name stopped running well. Maybe he gave me the shot. So, maybe, you know, there's all sorts of ways to theorize about it. Sure. And, and the Leem and yeah. Kinsey would have worked together with Burnett, with Burnett for, yeah. for maybe a decade or more prior. Mm-hmm. You know, Kinsey was the witness on the DeSable Mansion sale. The Kinseys wrote Laleem out of the story. They wrote about the murder in terms of he was so insanely jealous by a business rival that he just tried to kill him, but Kinsey was too crafty for him. Mm-hmm. So in one of the Kinsey narratives, they write about Kinsey, but they also write about the sale of the DeSable mansion to Francois Lamai, who was another trader. It sort of became that like when all this stuff started coming out about Laleem throughout the 20th century, they sort of assumed that 
Lamai was like a spelling of Laleem. Right. Like, even if you look at the paperwork in the 70s, the Pioneer Court by Trib Tower, like in landmark status, they talk about this is here that sold to Jean Laleem, also known as Lamai. Mm. But they were two different people. Lamai died in 1828. A guy randomly combing through Peoria County probate records in the 20th century found this record about Francois Lamai mm-hmm. dying in 1828. And there was a bill attached to it because James Kinsey, his son, was the one who brought the body to authorities. I'm not suggesting murder or anything. He literally sure. just got the body. And, and James Kinsey was from John Kinsey's yeah. first marriage. Yes. And, and, and his he, son. And he's in the, this is in the probate records because they billed the estate for the cost of getting the body and for a couple meals that Lamai ate at his house beforehand. Mm -hmm. So the Kinsey family knew Lamai, and they knew he was not Laleem, but when they were writing the narratives, he was like, yes, he bought this ramshackle shack from Lamai, as opposed to he obtained this sprawling, efficient, well-run farm from Laleem, who he later stabbed to death. Replace one Frenchman for another. Yeah. yeah, it replaced one Frenchman for another. It made Van Voorhees a coward. It made Heald a bungler. But then they also yeah. say that it's self-defense mm-hmm. when it's called a pure assassination by witnesses. And they have it both ways. Yeah. You know, Lillian was angry at John Kinsey, rivalry over business. Mm-hmm. Oh, what rivalry? Nothing. He had business dealings with Lamai, not Lillian. So it's just like they're having it both ways. And they disappear. Matthew Irwin... Irwin just not going to mention in any Kinsey narrative I've found. So Irwin, he escaped because he had to replace Lillian. He went off on July 5th to Michigan mm-hmm. to find a new translator. Well, he can't do his job because yeah. he can't speak the Native American languages. Yeah. And that's where Gene or, or John Lillian, he'd signed letters yeah. both ways, was elemental to his job as the U.S. factor. He well, couldn't operate without that. And it was also a good excuse to get out of town. Well, isn't, yeah. it, isn't, it, ironic that, isn't it ironic that the perfect candidate on paper would have been John Kinsey because he spoke all these languages? <laughs> right. That is true. And ironic sort of also means terrifying here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he gets to Fort Mackinac just in time for the British to take it. So he spends a couple weeks as a prisoner of war. And that's when the Fort Dearborn Massacre happens. So he was saved from the Fort Dearborn Massacre because he was a prisoner of war at the time. It's a good excuse. Yeah. And Matthew Irwin, he spent the rest of his life, as far as I can tell, believing John Kinsey organized the Fort Dearborn Massacre. Like, organized it for the sole purpose of killing Van Voorhees and him, of silencing the witness of his crimes, of of the murder of Lillian. A a cover-up, basically. Here's a quote from a letter he wrote the War Department on October 12th after he got out of being a prisoner of war and found out that everyone he knew was dead. Should he not have been instrumental in the fate of Chicago, I shall be much deceived, because if he fulfilled his part as emissary, spy for the British, he had it much in his power to preserve his own life by destroying the witnesses to the murder of Laleen. Mm -hmm. So Irwin just straight up told the War Department, I think he organized this massacre using his connections with the Potawatomi to cover up a crime. Who says conspiracy theory is a recent phenomenon? Yeah. What do you think, Paul? Do you think that Kinsey would have been smart enough to pull that off? Let's just accept Irwin's supposition that, yeah, he did it to cover up the murder. Yeah. Would that be good for business if suddenly the fort's been burned down? And um, would it have I mean, been good for Just business? from a cold-blooded, yeah, just cold-blooded Machiavellian... Standard, I think... Or, I mean, or law it, of unintended consequences. Yeah. I think it would have been good if the, the witnesses to his crime went away. Yeah. I think it would be good if Van Voorhees were dead. I think it would have been good if Heald was dead, who was iffy on the whole Kinsey thing, according to some accounts. I think he was with him, but not... But Kinsey does save Heald and his wife from the massacre. Yeah. So I think they had some kind of a special relationship. Yeah. Anyway, again, the, but, the funny part. Wow. So... War Department writes back, and at this point, all there is to do is say, hey, we don't need you as factor anymore since the factory was burned down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they offer to extend his pay till he feels ready to come to work again. He ends up as the factor at Green Bay. 
it is such a colossal failure up there that they launch a congressional investigation into why the Green Bay factory is such a disaster. Wow. <laughs> and then he gets appointed one of the justices in Wisconsin, like a judge. Mm-hmm. He has no legal training, but he gets appointed like one of the first justices up there. Well, he does have a sense of justice. That's yeah, right. Exactly. He's proven that, right? And oh, then he yeah, just right, went back right. home. He, went, uh, he yeah. became the postmaster of Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, just sort of like kept failing up. And I think I would have liked him. If I knew him, I think he would be the cool guy with the cool stories. You know, he'd be the cool postmaster. I think I would have liked him a great deal, but he wasn't exactly the most effectual reformer of Chicago. Well, he also sounds like, to borrow like a term that they didn't use back then, he's probably kind of an academic in the sense that he's book smart, but... When it came to playing the game, the political game, he's kind of just... He's happy puttering around the little vegetable garden. Yeah, I mean, just not very effective. Com- yeah, common he, sense may not have been a strong suit. R- right. Yeah, but, very noble spirit. Sure. Very ineffectual as a reformer. Yeah, right. I mean, right. I guess that's hard, harsh to say because he did clear out the whole Cooper and Whistler situation. Well, in Chicago, we would call someone like him a goo-goo. Yeah. The Chicago politicians don't give much respect for those folks. No, no. I think like what I do is more like popular history, and some of my background is tourism. I do the used to do the tours, the boat yeah. tours and everything. I think there's a really dumb habit of like sort of going, uh, you know, uh-huh. some say, you know, like some say Capone's ghost was right here. So I don't want to like hint and nudge too much. But in the meantime, Van Voorhees has killed the Fort Dearborn massacre, and the Kinsey version of events I find is such a crappy little touch. The Juliet Kinsey slash Eleanor Kinsey version of things goes into lengths to describe a coward's death mm. for one of the guys who was informing on John Kinsey. Isaac Van Voorhees. Isaac Van Voorhees. It's like this passage describing this horrible massacre and then like a page talking about Van Voorhees being a coward. That's such a dick move. He's oh, yeah. Irwin's buddy and the two of them both witnessed the murder of Laleem by Kinsey. Mm-hmm. How can people read your article on Laleem? Okay, yeah, Chicago Reader, up in all its glory. The full article is called The Long Death of John Laleem. Then you can either search for my name, Dayling, D-A-I-L-I-N-G, or Laleem, spelled like Lalime. It's a great read. You've got a little bit of everything in there. There's some bits about Chicago in many different facets that are thrown in, which make for very interesting reading. It's a great read. Thanks. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was twice as long when I turned it in. My editors are saints. Uh, Amy Levitt and Anne Elizabeth Moore turned a 10,000-word story, which if you've done professional writing, you have just winced a little at the word 10,000 words. <laughs> That's a long piece. It got down to about 5,000, but Amy and Anne are saints. Yeah, it was originally about dead bodies in Chicago, which is another weird story, but probably not one that'll be relevant well the the reader's a great weekly here in chicago and it's probably the only place you would find a great article like you did on on the lean yeah no it's it's really it's a a treasure there i hope they i hope they do well yeah i mean they're the ones that really do really deep investigative reporting Mm -hmm. in chicago i mean you can't count on the tribune or the sun times anymore for that uh, compared to what the reader does long form as fans of chicago history we hope that you have the opportunity in the future to to write more Chicago history because you're, you're very good at it. Okay. We enjoyed it. Thanks. Well, thanks for coming in. No it's been great to have you on Windy City Historians Podcast. Yeah. And we'll hopefully talk to you again at another time when we, we are going to get into the 1920s or 30s. So, Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. We in, keep in digging a, up all this new history. and Yeah, in about 1,001 nights, we'll, <laughs> we'll make it to the 1920s. That's only three years. <laughs> um, okay, so, back in the studio. It's July 1812, where we leave off. Yep. Okay. Now, episode 11, our next podcast, is about the events of August 15th, 1812. Yes. Yeah, so we get to talk to Professor Ann Durkin Keating again, uh, Dr. Keating, and she's going to walk us through the lead up and details of the Fort Dearborn Massacre or Battle of Fort Dearborn, as she prefers to call it, because it is basically part of this conflict at the beginning of the War of 1812 here in Chicago. So this is the first star of the Chicago flag. That's right, because the Chicago flag has the red stars on it, and there's four, I believe. Yes. So the very first one is commemorating 
the battle or Fort Dearborn massacre, as it would have been known at that time, on the Chicago flag. And so we're going to have our starred episodes throughout the rest of this podcast series, yes, which we're calling Laying the Foundation of Chicago History. They are few and far between, but they are important. That's right. So episode 11, the first star, the Battle of Fort Dearborn. August 15th, 1812. So we look forward to you coming back and listening to that one as well. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians podcast. Episode 10, The First Murder. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. <laughs>